Well, this evening we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25, and these are words that Jesus spoke, and he spoke about these words about the end of time. Last week we heard what's going to happen at the end of the world. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to judge everyone. And here in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives us a preview of what that judgment will look like. Jesus says these words, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill, or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you give me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you give me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of these, the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Let's pray as we come to think tonight about hell. Almighty God, tonight we're here to consider a very sobering topic, a topic that is difficult, that makes us feel uncomfortable, and yet a topic that your son, the Lord Jesus, spoke about over and over again. Almighty God, our prayer tonight is that as we consider this issue that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, but more than that, Lord, as we leave here, would you transform us? As we consider the reality of hell tonight, would you help us to respond after hearing about it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hell. Just listen to that word for a second. Hell. What's your gut reaction when you hear it? 
Whenever you hear somebody say that word, what is your gut reaction to it? My guess is that for most of us here tonight, whenever we hear the word hell, it makes us feel deeply uncomfortable. It agitates us. It makes us feel uneasy. Some of you are here tonight and you are of an older generation. And the reason why the word hell makes you feel so uncomfortable is because you grew up in a church that was always preaching about hell. For you, whenever you think back to the days of the past, all you remember are sermons that constantly spoke about hell and judgment. And tonight, as you hear that word hell said tonight, you remember those uncomfortable feelings you had as children and young people growing up in a church that always talked about hell. If you're an older person here tonight, maybe the word makes you feel uncomfortable because of the past. And maybe as you sit here tonight, you're glad that, that hell is not always spoken about so much. Maybe tonight as an older person, you're glad that in the church today, we talk about how to live for Jesus in our daily life. We talk about the love of God and the grace of God. And maybe for you tonight, when you hear the word hell, it's uncomfortable because of your upbringing in church. But maybe you're here and you're not an older person tonight. And for you, whenever you hear the word hell, it makes you feel uncomfortable for a whole different set of reasons. It makes you feel uncomfortable because your friends don't believe there's anything after death. And for you to believe in hell, that makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you're a younger person here tonight and the thought of hell makes you uncomfortable because you cannot understand or believe that a God who is loving and kind and gracious could ever send anyone there. Some of you younger people here tonight, you've never heard a sermon on hell. You've never heard it preached. You've never heard it mentioned. And so even the word hell for you makes you feel uncomfortable. And there are others of you here tonight, and the word hell makes you feel uncomfortable for all sorts of different reasons, maybe deeply personal reasons. Maybe the word hell makes you feel upset, but it makes you feel uncomfortable. I think that for most of us here tonight, hearing the word hell makes us feel uneasy and uncomfortable. My guess is that most of us tonight would like to keep hell somewhere up in the roof space of our minds. You know, like the Christmas decorations, we know they're there, but we don't get them out very much. I think most of us want to keep hell a bit like that. Somewhere tucked away, somewhere that we don't think about it very much. But tonight we are going to think about it. Tonight we're going to consider what the Lord Jesus Christ says about hell. And the reason why we're doing that tonight is because Jesus wants us to know about hell. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus Christ, our Savior, wants us to know about hell? Well, Marty, how do you know that? Here's how I know it. It's because out of everybody in the whole Bible, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. Did you know that? Out of everyone in the, the whole Bible, all 3,000 years of history, the person who spoke most about hell was Jesus Christ. 
And the reason why we're getting hell out of the roof space tonight is because Jesus wants us to think about it. He wants us to know about it. He wants us to grasp what hell is all about. I want to put a bit of a warning out tonight. There are times you're going to feel uncomfortable. There are times whenever you hear the words of Jesus tonight that you're going to feel uneasy. But just because you feel uncomfortable and just because you feel uneasy does not give us a reason to ignore what Jesus says. And tonight we're going to look at the words of Jesus and we're going to answer three simple questions about hell. The first question is this, what is hell according to Jesus? What is it according to our Savior? The second question is, what leads to hell? What is it that actually leads a person to end up in hell? And the third question is this, why on earth does Jesus want us to know about it? Why does he want us to know about hell tonight? So let's move on to that first question, the first of three. What exactly is hell? Whenever you look in the world today, there are lots of different answers to that question. Lots of people have lots of different ideas about hell. There is a man called Dante who lived in the 12th century, and he was a poet. And he wrote this incredibly epic poem called The Divine Comedy. And in the first part of the poem, he describes hell that he has to travel through. And his picture, it is so graphic and so gruesome and so dark. According to Dante, there are nine levels of hell. In some of these levels, sinners are bitten by snakes. In some of them, they're tormented by beasts. In some of them, they're trapped in icy waters, unable to get out. In Dante's picture of hell, there are these gruesome, dark pictures of human suffering and torture. That is one view of hell. This place of horrible suffering, a horrible experience, a really dark, dark place. C.S. Lewis from East Belfast, a, a great thinker, an atheist at one point, but a Christian later on, he thought a lot about hell as well. And Lewis, he had this idea of hell, which was a lot less creepy. He wrote a book called The, the Great Divorce. It's a fictional book. And in this book, he describes what he thinks hell is like. And it's like a gray, nondescript city where people move further and further and further away from each other. It's a place of extreme loneliness. It's a place where all the joy is gone. It's a place where all the happiness, all the things that make life good have disappeared. It's a grim, horrible, lonely place. And then you have other people. And it's weird. They have a really kind of happy view of hell. The band ACDC, they say one of their lyrics, hell is a place where all of our friends are. Some people think of hell as being like a, a separate kingdom where the devil rules and you party and you get drunk and you have a really good time. They think that hell is going to be a good place, a place where all of their friends are, where they'll get to party all day long. Tonight, if I was to ask you, if I was to sit down with you here after this, or just now and ask you, what is your view of hell? What is it that comes to your mind? 
many people today, they think it doesn't exist. They think it is a fairy tale made up by the church to control people. What is your view of hell tonight? Tonight, whatever it is, I'd like you to do something. I'd like you to set that to the side tonight. I'd like you to put that to one side for the next 20 minutes or so. Because what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at Jesus' words on hell. We're going to learn about hell from Jesus Christ himself. And so what does Jesus say that hell actually is? Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus says that hell is a place of punishment after judgment. A place of punishment after judgment. Last week, John did a brilliant job, didn't he? Of helping us see what happens whenever Christ returns. Jesus is going to return. Everyone who has ever lived is going to be resurrected. And everyone is going to be judged by Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen at the end when Christ returns. And then here in Matthew 25, like we just read a few moments ago, we get a glimpse of this judgment. Let me read to you from 31 to 32. Jesus says, When the Son of Man, that's him, comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The judge will enter the court and he will sit down. Before him will be gathered all the nations. That's all of the people, like John was saying, everyone who's ever lived is going to stand before Jesus Christ to be judged. And then what does Jesus say is going to happen? He says that just like a shepherd separates sheep from goats, so everyone is going to be separated. Some of you are maybe from a farming background. I know at least one of you here tonight is a farmer. And if you look at sheep and you look at goats, they look pretty similar, don't they? I mean, from a distance, it's hard to tell what's a sheep and what's a goat. And here at the end of the time, whenever everyone is gathered, when we look at each other, it's going to be difficult to tell the difference between one another. But Jesus will know the difference. And he's going to separate all people into two groups, just like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And then what's going to happen? In verses 34 to 46, we hear Jesus' judgment announced. Take a look at verse 41. Look what it says there. To the goats, to those on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What a sobering thought. Jesus is going to separate people into two groups. And to one group of people, he's going to say, depart from me. Be gone from me. Go to the place, the burning fire, where the devil and his angels are going to be punished. The reality of that picture is upsetting, isn't it? That's what Jesus says is going to happen. And then if you look at what is going to happen in that place, according to Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. 
Look at verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do you see what Jesus says is going to happen in this place where the goats go? He says that there's going to be eternal punishment. Hell is a place of judgment, a place of punishment after judgment. And I don't know about you listening here tonight, but I find those words of Jesus very, very sobering. Very, very sobering indeed. He doesn't just say, though, that it's a a place of punishment after judgment. Jesus then goes on to describe what hell is like. And he does it with imagery of darkness and fire and gnashing of teeth. He, He doesn't paint hell as being this party town where everyone's having a good time. He doesn't, par- like, he doesn't describe it like, I don't know, Las Vegas or one of these big party cities. That's not how Jesus describes hell. No, the imagery and the, the picture that Jesus gives us, again, is a very sobering picture. He describes it as a place of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've seen the fire in In the passage we've just read, we also see it in Matthew chapter 13. Again, Jesus is talking here and he says this. He tells this parable about wheat and weeds. Again, two things that grew up together. And then in the parable, they're separated. And Jesus says this, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." Jesus says in this story, listen, you see all the weeds? Get them together and throw them into the fire to be burned. But he's not talking about farming here. Because he goes on and then he explains exactly what this story is all about. Again, the words of Jesus for us. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And then He goes on. It's not just once. He goes on a few verses later and He says, So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Over and over and over again, Jesus talks about hell and he uses this picture language of fire to describe it. And not only fire, he he also uses darkness to describe it. Darkness is frightening, isn't it? It's frightening to be in the dark. Even if you're a big, strong man, even if you're a big, tough man, to walk alone in the streets through the dark is unpleasant and frightening. 
And Jesus over and over again says that that hell is a place of darkness. In Matthew 8, he makes it clear. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to Jews who think that they're going to get get into heaven because of their uh, ethnicity. And he says, listen, guys, I tell you what, there's Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom of God. And then he says this, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be weeping in hell. People will be upset there. A gnashing of teeth. Do you know what it is to gnash your teeth? You know whenever you're in pain and you bite down in pain? Or discomfort? That's what it means to gnash your teeth. Fire, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. These are the images that Jesus uses to describe the place he calls hell. It is a terrible picture he paints. It is a frightening place he paints. And the reason he does it is because he doesn't want us to have it in our minds that hell is going to be Las Vegas for eternity. It's not. It's going to be awful. The third thing then that we see about hell, we're answering the question again, what is hell? The third thing we see from the words of Jesus, is that hell is a place of seemingly everlasting punishment. It's a place where the punishment doesn't seem to come to an end. Whenever it comes to how long hell lasts, there are two main views within Bible-believing Christians. And there are some Christians who, they read the Bible And they come to the conclusion that there is a period of time where people spend in hell being punished and then at the end, they come to an end. At the end of a a period of time being punished in hell, some Christians believe that you're simply destroyed, you're annihilated, your life is over and you're destroyed in some way. So they believe that, that hell lasts for a period of time and then there is destruction. And this view, it's got a technical name. It's called annihilationism. People are annihilated at the end of their time in hell. A hero of mine, a a magnificent Bible teacher, someone who I look up to who's passed on to glory, the late John Stott, he held this view. He believed that, that hell would just last for a period of time and then it would come to an end. And whenever you look at why John Stott believes it, part of it is at a heart level, he wants this to be true. But he also tries to make some arguments from Scripture itself. So he points to the words of Jesus, which some of them seem to point to the the truth that, that hell might actually end at some point for people. Matthew chapter 10, for example, Jesus says, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And John Stott would say, listen, do you hear what Jesus says there? Jesus says that the soul and the body will be destroyed in hell. John Stott would say, listen, that's language of destruction. That's language of something coming to an end. That's language of annihilation. Jesus doesn't say 
Fear him who can throw you into hell where you'll be tormented forever. No, Jesus says there, fear him who can throw you into hell and destroy your soul and your body. John Stott also very often pointed to the words of Paul. Paul was someone who who didn't use the word hell, but he always spoke about the end of the wicked. And Paul, in, in his writing, uses words like perish and destroy. And again, John Stott would say, look, perish means coming to an end. Perish means being destroyed. This was the argument that that John Stott made and the other Christians make and that I, with all of my heart, would love to believe. I really would love to get on board with this. I have friends who, who, who are going to hell. I have family members who are going to hell. And with all of my heart, this is what I'd love to believe. It's still not pleasant for them. They're still going to face punishment. But with all my heart, I would love to believe this. But I'm not sure Jesus gives me that option. You see, because although there are points when Jesus says the word destroy, although Paul does say the words perish, the word everlasting is also used over and over by Jesus. Hell is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is never put out. Even in that passage in Matthew chapter 25, did you notice what Jesus said at the end of it? And these will go away into eternal punishment. I would love to believe that there is a point to which people are punished to and then they're destroyed. And maybe there is an argument from it from Scripture. But Jesus also uses the words eternal and everlasting. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says that the sheep in Matthew chapter 25, he says they go to eternal life. Eternal life, what does that mean? It means life that goes on forever. Life that doesn't end. We'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? And yet in the same breath, he also says that the goats will go to eternal punishment. This is not easy. This is difficult. This is troubling. But this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus says about hell. It is a real place. It's a place of punishment after judgment. It's a place he describes as with fire, with weeping, with gnashing of teeth, and with darkness. And it's a place where the punishment seemingly doesn't end. These are the words of Jesus tonight. Let's go on to our second question. What is it that actually leads a person to end up in hell? 
Jesus says that that's where the goats are going to go. Jesus says that's where those are going to go at the end. Whenever he judges, he says, there's going to be a great number of people who are going to be sent to hell. Well, what actually leads for a person to end there? Well, again, the Bible is really helpful in giving us an answer. And it's Paul himself who helps us answer this the clearest. And he helps us answer it in the book of Romans. Romans 1 to 3 are really helpful verses and chapters to look at for understanding this. The first thing that leads a person to hell is a rejection of God. To reject God will lead a person to hell. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 21, Paul says this. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So he says, listen, there is wrath coming. It's coming from heaven. The sun is going to come from heaven and he's going to display the wrath of God. Judgment is coming. Who is this judgment coming on, according to Paul? All the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For though they knew God, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Paul says, listen, the wrath of God is coming against people who know God exists and they know he exists because God has made it plain to them. He's made it clear in creation. God's wrath is coming against people who know God exists but refuse to glorify him as God or give thanks to him. God's wrath is coming on people who reject God. You see, in one sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell. What? That's true. In one sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell, but people send themselves there by saying no to him, by rejecting him. If someone lives their life, think about this, telling God to get out and keep out. If someone lives their life saying to God, I don't want you. Get out of my life. Be far from me. Well, after judgment, they simply get what they've asked for. God says to them, okay, your will be done. You don't want me, you won't get me. You'll be banished from my loving presence. Rejecting God leads to hell. The second thing that we see in Romans chapter 2 this time is that rebelling against God also leads to hell. Romans chapter 2 begins with this. He says, You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Now that is a little bit complex, but let me try and unpack it for you. 
I want you to think of an unbelieving person, someone who doesn't know God, who doesn't trust God, someone who doesn't want God. That person within them has a conscience. There is an idea that that unchristian people or unbelieving people don't have a conscience. They do. And very often they're more moral than we give people credit for. But what Paul says to the unbelieving person is that whenever you say something is wrong, you're testifying inwardly that you have a God-given conscience. You know things are wrong and you judge people for doing those things, but that's not the only thing. You also do them. By saying that you know something's wrong and doing it yourself, you're condemning yourself. You're condemning yourself. What leads to hell is people rebelling against God. You see the sheep and the goats of Matthew chapter 25? That is the difference between them. Those who were really God's people, those who were really righteous, those who who maybe looked like sheep, or those who were actually sheep, those who were really God's people, they didn't just say they were, but they lived God's way. They helped the poor and they helped the needy. It wasn't all talk. They also walked the walk. The evidence that we really are one of God's people is that we have a lifestyle that shows we are. But the goats, they rebelled against God. They maybe even thought they were God's people, but they didn't live God's way. They rebelled against Him. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't help the poor and needy. They didn't do the things that God calls His people to do throughout the whole of Scripture. Here in Romans chapter 2 and in Matthew 25, we see that rebellion against God leads to hell. Now maybe, and I hope you're kind of scratching your head here, because if this is true, is this not all of us? Is this not us? At one point in time or another? Have we not all been people who've rejected God? Are we not all people who still rebel against God? Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 are terrible news for people out there, but they're also terrible news for people like us. But I love Romans because after giving bad news in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul gives some astoundingly good news in chapter 3. And Paul doesn't just say what leads to hell. He then says what leads to heaven. He then says what the solution is for, for my sin and my rebellion and my rejection of God. And he says it so wonderfully in Romans chapter 3. Verse 23, he sums up what we already know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Me, you, everyone, we've all blown it. And all are justified freely by his grace. Listen, Paul says, we all deserve hell but we can have grace. 
God holds out a gift for us. And it's the gift of being justified. That's what the Bible calls it. Being right with God, having that record of sin taken away from us. Paul says, we all fall short, but there is a gift of justification that you can have. And how can this gift be an offer? Paul goes on and he says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Rejection of God, rebellion against God leads to hell, but there is a gift. Jesus on the cross died. And on the cross, he bore the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And if we trust in him, if we put all of our hope in him, if we rely on him for forgiveness, then Jesus takes our punishment that we deserve forgiven. Our record is spotless. All because of him. What leads to hell? Rejection of God. Rebellion against God. But Jesus says you don't need to go there. Let's finish off very quickly with our last question. Why on earth does Jesus want us to know about hell? Why does he speak so much about it? Why is he so keen that we get this? Let me suggest at least three reasons. The first one is this. It's so we're not ignorant. People say that ignorance is bliss, but it isn't. It's not bliss. Imagine going for a swim in a shark-infested sea and nobody tells you that the sea has sharks in it. That is not bliss. That's simply dangerous and unwise. The reason Jesus tells us about hell is so that we know about its reality. It's so that we know it's a real place and a real place people are going. Jesus does not want us to be ignorant. I tell you what, you see as someone who is a Christian, and someone who believes the words of Jesus. Sometimes I want to pretend that after death, for people who reject God, there's nothing. That's what I'd like to believe. I'd love to believe that. As I think about my friends and my family who reject God and rebel against Him, I would love to think that when they die, there's just nothing. Or that they go to heaven. I'd love to think that. But Jesus says that's not so. And he wants me to know that. And he wants you to know that. And that leads us to the second reason why Jesus tells us about hell. Because we know the cure. Imagine there's someone and they're drowning. And they're drowning and they're right in front of you. And you're standing here and you're looking at them down there. And you're in the harbor and right beside you is a life ring. You can see it. It's right there. Now you know that this life ring is there. And now you know they're drowning. 
What are you going to do? You're going to throw the life ring to them, aren't you? And this is why Jesus tells us about hell. It's so that we will throw people the life ring. They might not grab onto it. They might not take it. They might decide that they're just going to try and swim it out. But Jesus tells us about hell so that we can recognize that people are drowning and so that we will throw them the life ring of the gospel. We have the news that saves. We have the only news that saves. And Jesus gives us this understanding of hell so that we will actually act upon this news and throw the life ring to people. We are so embarrassed to evangelize. We are so afraid to tell people about Jesus. We are so afraid to sit down with our friends and our family and have a serious conversation about Christ. We would never dream of inviting a friend or family member to church to hear about Jesus because we'd be worried what they might think. But what if this is true? What if this is true? What if people are going to hell and we're the only people with a life ring? We need to tell people about Jesus. We need to share the good news we have. This is why we need to know about this. We need to share the gospel. And the last reason why Jesus tells us about this is so we don't go there. Jesus is not cruel. He's not telling us about hell just so that we can kind of expect something awful after death if we're not a Christian. No, he tells us about hell so that we will put our hope in him and all of our trust in him and rely on him as the savior who we can rely on. Tonight, I know where most of you stand with Christ and I'm encouraged, but I don't know where all of you stand. Tonight, will you take hold of the life ring? Tonight, will you put all of your hope in Christ? Tonight, if you don't have Christ, you're drowning. And you will drown, no matter how hard you swim, no matter how hard you try. Without Christ, you'll be lost. Please, 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 put your trust in him, the only one who can save. Okay, please take a seat. And we're going to give a go for some Q&A. So if you've got a question, feel free to text it. Or if you'd like to ask it from the floor, you can. Um, I, I was asked a question earlier in the week in advance, so I'm going to answer that one first. And the question is this, what about a person who has never heard the gospel? So what about a person who has never heard about Jesus? What, what, do they go to hell? What happens there? Um, there are kind of three parts to this answer. The first part is this, is that the, the, that question is never directly addressed in Scripture. So it's never answered directly in Scripture. And one of the reasons I think it's not addressed directly is because 
Jesus actually says that we are to go to all people and preach the gospel. Go to all nations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And it's almost as if Jesus can't imagine, you know, the world, the whole world not knowing about him because he sent us out to do it. So that's the first thing is that, that it's not addressed in Scripture because it's our job as the church, as Christians, to tell the gospel to everybody. So there should be no one who's never heard, but that's the reality in our world today. But that's the first part. The second part of the answer is this. It's that God, although he normally uses a human voice and human people like us, God now and throughout time has also used different means to bring people to Christ. One of the fastest growing churches in the world is the church in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Did you know that? It is one of the places where the church is growing faster than anywhere else in the globe right now. And did you know that in Iran, it is illegal to share the gospel? It's illegal to talk about Jesus. But God wants to save people there. And what God has been doing in places like Iran, I was in India in this Hindu country where it's illegal to convert to Christianity, in India, in North Korea, in China, in all of these places where you're not allowed to talk about Jesus, God is giving people dreams and visions. They're seeing Jesus. They're learning about Jesus. God is revealing it to them. And then what God is doing is he's, he's putting people in these people's lives to tell them more about him. We can't imagine that, but that's what's happening in the world. There was an Iranian soldier who had a dream about Jesus. And this is a true story. It's open doors. You can read about it. An Iranian soldier had a dream about Jesus. And, and God told him to go to a petrol station and wait there. And so this Iranian soldier, he went to the petrol station and he stood there for two days. And he'd seen a picture of a man coming and, and this man came in the car, he got out of the petrol station and they went over to the man, the Iranian soldier, and he says, I think I meant to speak to you. And the Iranian soldier said, yes, Jesus told me to wait here for you. And this man who came in the car, he had Bibles. It was illegal to have Bibles in the country, but he gave this man a Bible. And this man gave his life to Christ. So even though that we think that there are so many people who haven't heard the gospel, God is making the gospel known to people, even without using human beings right now. But our responsibility as the church is to go and to reach the nations. Okay, Marty, but that's a bit of a cop-out. What about people who actually haven't heard? And what about people who haven't had dreams or visions? Well, I'm going to let someone much smarter answer this for me. I'm going to hand over to the video now to a man called William Lane Craig. And William Lane Craig is a, a man who does apologetics. He defends the Christian faith. And William Lane Craig is one of the only people who Richard Dawkins will refuse to debate. Very smart man, some very good answers, and I'll let William answer the last part of that question. question is that if a person has never ever been exposed to the gospel, mm -hmm. has never heard anyone go and give them the gospel, and they die without hearing the gospel even once, without hearing the name of Jesus, saves them and died for them, how would God judge them? Okay, 
The question here is, how does God judge people who have never heard the gospel of Christ? And I think that the Bible indicates that God judges people on the basis of the information that they have. He judges them on the basis of the light that they have. Um, so that those who have never heard of Christ will not be judged on the basis of whether they've placed their faith in Christ. That would be manifestly unfair. They've never heard of Jesus, so how could they place their faith in him? Rather, Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 that they will be judged on the basis of how they've responded to God's general revelation in nature and in conscience. Paul says, in nature, all men at any time in history, any place in the world, can know that there is an eternal and powerful deity who has created the world. And in chapter two he says that God's moral law is written on the hearts of all people, even those who do not have the Old Testament law, so that we do by nature what the law requires. We have an instinctual grasp of right and wrong. And so those who um, have never heard the gospel will be judged on the basis of their response to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. Now that does not mean that someone can be saved apart from the work of Christ. What it would mean is that the benefits of Christ's death could be applied to someone without his conscious knowledge of Christ. If he were to look out at the world and say, I know there's a God who's created all this, look in at his own heart and say, I, I don't live up to the demands of God's moral law, and he flings himself on the mercy of this God, uh, asking for forgiveness and pleading for mercy and grace, um, that person would be saved by grace through the blood of Christ, even if he had no knowledge of Christ. He would be like people in the Old Testament who had no conscious knowledge of Christ at all, but they responded to the light that they had and were judged by their response to that light. Now, this raises all sorts of questions. Are there any people like this? Uh, I hope so. I hope Aristotle gets in. Um, but if you take Romans 1 seriously, I think you have to say there's not very many people like this. Paul says that rather than worship and serve the creator, people turn to gods of their own making and turn away from God. And rather than live up to his moral law, they plunge themselves into immorality and degeneracy and so find themselves condemned before God just on the basis of his general revelation in nature and conscience. So I don't think we can be optimistic that very many people will access salvation through general revelation, but nevertheless, I think it is possible that, that it, it is, salvation is available to them if they will respond in an appropriate way. And God will judge them fairly and justly because that is God's very nature. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, another couple of questions have come through. Um, one is, should we, do you think we should teach about hell in children's ministry? So maybe thinking over at Shine or things like that. Um, I think that the primary place that, that if we're going to teach children about hell, it should be at home. 
I think like just general principle, it's, it's parents' job to teach their children about the faith, about Jesus Christ, about the Bible. So as parents, we are the primary people who are responsible for what our children know about Christ. And I think that the, the, the primary person who should ever talk about hell to their children is, is a parent. Um, but some things I think it's important to understand, you know, we, we, <laughs> we wouldn't want to do with a child what we've just done tonight. You know, here's everything Jesus says about hell. Doesn't that sound very frightening? Because um, children are frightened. So I think we, we want, if we're going to talk about hell, we need to think of age-appropriate ways to talk about it. So with Josh at the minute, I don't necessarily talk about hell yet, but I'm talking about this new world that God is going to make, and he's very excited about it. I've told him about this new world that's coming with no more tears and no more sickness and sadness where we're going to be with God forever. And at the minute, Joshua knows that that is what's coming for people who trust in Jesus. Now, that's where we're at with Joshua, who's five. Now, at some point, we'll, we'll move on from that and we'll talk about the other part of that story. But I think, it, it, I think we must be very sensitive to children and not just try to frighten them. Also, the, the other thing about hell, and it's, I guess, one of the maybe weaknesses of, 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 of different generations is that the focus of preaching has been so hell-centric that people have trusted in Jesus to get out of hell. And that has been their primary motivation to trust in Jesus. It's like someone, you know, uh, trusting in Jesus to get out of jail. Jesus becomes a get-out-of-jail-free card. And so our trust in him is simply because it'll be better for us. And there are many people who have got that trust and, they, and they've come to Christ, and that's okay, that's how God has brought them. But, but I think that we, we, we really want people to trust in Jesus because of Jesus. We want them to be awed at what he has done. Yes, we want them to know about hell. Yes, I'll want my children to know about hell at some point. But what I really want them to know is what Jesus has done to rescue them. Isn't Jesus marvelous? Follow Jesus because of Jesus. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that hell can't be a motivator for people to come to Christ. I'm not saying we should ignore hell, but I'm saying there are some people who, if you ask them why they're a Christian, it's because they don't want to go to hell. It's not because Jesus has done this for me and he's wonderful. So I think it's, it's too, I think we, we do want to teach them. I think in children's ministry, if it comes up in the curriculum as we go through the Bible, then yes, but I think we need to be very careful, especially for young children, how we explain it. Okay, um, that's another Question. Okay, another question. Um, are we punished for not being able to bring family and friends to God, even if we have tried? Or is the punishment our own guilt? There is. So, whenever we think of evangelism, and whenever we think of our lost friends and our lost family, there are two things we need to understand. The first one is our job, and the second one is God's job. And what I mean by that is that our, our job is to tell them the news. Our job is to throw them the life ring. That is our job. Jesus says, go into the world and preach the gospel. So our job is to throw the life ring. But God's job is to move a person to grab hold of it. And that is really important we get that. 
We can save no one. We cannot make anyone trust in Jesus. We cannot save any person at all. We cannot do it. We just cannot do it. That is not our job. Only God can do it. And as we sit around this room tonight, if you think about that, that makes sense. Some of you had heard the gospel over and over and over again, and it made not a shred of difference in your life. But then one day, God turned on the lights. He opened up your blind eyes, and you put your trust in Jesus. So our job is to to throw the life ring. Our job is to tell people about Christ, and it's important we take that seriously. It's important we have those conversations. It's important we don't back off from, from trying to do that. But we cannot save someone. If you have done your thing, if you have taken your responsibility, if you've shared the gospel, then you have done your job. I've done that with people and they haven't responded to Christ. I've shared the gospel with people, friends, family, and um, they haven't trusted Jesus and, and it breaks my heart. As you probably gathered as I was preaching, I got emotional, which... I don't normally do. Um, maybe if you're in that situation, maybe some things that are maybe helpful to think about is this. Um, the first thing is you see for those friends and family, don't stop weeping for them. Don't take the, the idea of hell and just throw it in the bin. Remember that's there. And, 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 and as the Lord breaks your heart for them, weep for them. Pray for them. Pray earnestly for those people. You can't save them, but God can, by his breaking in and dwelling presence, he can break their hard hearts. Pray for them. The other thing is that, that take opportunities to share the gospel, but don't go overboard. As the opportunities come, take them. If you haven't spoken to someone about Jesus for years, maybe say, listen, could we have a conversation sometime and sit them down? But don't go overboard. Don't make your whole life about sharing the gospel with them because what is going to happen is they're not going to want to spend time with you anymore. You're going to be that pain in their side who only ever wants to talk about Jesus and you don't want to love them and be their friend for them. But do take the opportunities. But don't put them off. Pray for them. Weep for them. Show them affection. Show them that you love them. Show them they're not a project. Show them that you deeply care. I have a sneaking suspicion that people think we evangelize them because we want them to join our club. I think people think that we evangelize them because we want them to join our church and boost the numbers or we want them to join our Christian club so we can feel good about ourselves that they're now part of the club. I have a sneaking suspicion that that's what a lot of people think with our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving family, let's show them that we dearly love them. Let's show them that we share the gospel. It's not to get them in the club. It's because our hearts break for them and we want them to know God and enjoy his presence forever. I hope that's answered the question. I know we're not punished if we don't bring anyone with us. We're not even punished if we fail to share the gospel. But there's something sad if we do. Sad for us. Okay, um, last question. Are there different degrees of punishment in hell? 
Um, yes, yes, there are. There are different degrees of punishment in hell. Um, some people kind of think that hell must be very unfair. You know, if, if, I don't know, let's say a Buddhist monk ends up beside Hitler, you know, experiencing the same, the same punishment as Hitler. Or if your friend across the street or your brother or sister, you know, you kind of think, oh, yeah, do, do, they, do they experience the same punishment? Well, it seems in the Bible that no, they don't. And again, it's the words of Jesus that, 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 that help us see that. Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, he's speaking to a group of people who've rejected him. So they've seen his miracles, they've heard his teaching, and they have rejected Jesus having seen of all of this. And Jesus says to them, he says, listen, it's gonna be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Sodom and Gomorrah in all of their sin, the punishment they face will be less than the punishment you face. Because you've seen me and you've heard me and you've rejected me. To me, it's not that this brings me comfort. That's the wrong word. Um, comfort is the wrong word. I, there, there is no comfort really in, in thinking of anyone that I know and love experiencing hell. There's no comfort in it. It's very uncomfortable. But um, the, the thing that helps a bit is believing that there are varying degrees of punishment. And the other thing that really helps me a little bit um, is that the Bible says that will not the judge of the earth do right? God is not vindictive. He is not evil. He is not bad. He is good. And what that means is that whatever punishment is given in hell will be just. And everyone who experiences it will say, yes, this, this was the right punishment. This is a fair judgment. It doesn't help me, but it helps me if that makes sense. So in answer to the question, yes, there, there, there it seems that there will be varying degrees of punishment. And one of the things that we haven't talked about tonight, there's a whole other sermon on it. Um, tonight was a very person-centered sermon. It was a very human-centered sermon. Um, but there's another sermon to be preached sometime about God's glory and hell and how God gets glory from judgment. But that is a whole different sermon and one I will not be preaching for many years' time because this has done me in tonight preaching this one. Um, any other questions? Nope. Thank goodness for... Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.